0: I, I am very, very interested this morning in you experiencing God and hearing his voice. You know, like Chase said with these kids, I was so excited to talk to these kids because they had an encounter with the living, breathing God. They had an encounter with this great and awesome God. And I just, um, I want us to pray, first of all, for them that that the Lord would continue to take that seed of his truth and his word deeper so that it would bear great fruit, so that it wouldn't get stolen away. Um, and then I also want to pray for us that, that the Lord would reveal something new to us. We're really going to be talking about healing faith. So we're going to be talking about how kind and powerful our God is. So let's, let's pray together before we get into the word. Oh. Lord, you are great. Your name is great. Lord, it is humbling to be in your presence, Lord. Father, we, uh, we bless your name, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for the things that you did in the kids at youth camp. Lord, I just want to praise your name. Lord, you are so great and you are so intimately acquainted with all of our ways. And Lord, for each and every one of the kids that went to camp and even those who weren't able to go this year. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you as a family, as a church family. Lord, we pray God, that the truth would continue to reign supreme in their hearts. Lord, that the seed of your word, the true things that you spoke and you revealed by your spirit would yield great fruit in them, Lord. We ask, God, in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would continue to draw these kids near to you by your spirit. You would continue to reveal yourself to them, Lord, for this next generation. Father, we just, we ask God in Jesus' name for your blessing to be on our youth and on our our young adults, Lord, and all the upcoming leaders, Lord. We just ask that you would just brand them, Lord, with your name. Father, and I pray for each and every person within the hearing of my voice, Lord. I pray, Jesus, that you would show them something new by your spirit, reveal something deep. Lord, the secrets of the kingdom are within your word. Lord, I pray that you would begin to let us see more and more into your spirit. Lord, let us go deeper with you, each and every one of us, Lord. And we thank you for your your greatness. And yet, We thank you so much, too, that even though you are great and almighty and all-powerful, you are love. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you turn to the person next to you and say he wants to talk to you today? I don't hear you. Okay, so we're going to start today. I love this. It's, like I said, it's two stories. Um, We're going to start in Mark chapter 5. This is verse 21. Verse 21. Um, And this is called Healing Faith. And I'm going to explain what that means a little bit later and um, talk about what's happening. But let's just go to the beginning here of the word of God. Uh, Jesus got into the boat again and he went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet pleading fervently with him. I want you to think about this. Set this scenario up in your own mind. Hear this guy, he's a religious leader. He's the leader of the synagogue. He's an important guy. He falls at the feet of Jesus, and he says this. My little daughter is dying. As a parent, it's unfathomable to imagine. My little daughter is dying. He says, please, come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Okay, so imagine this. How many of you parents in here? You know, it's to, to fathom that the thought that your 12-year-old child is dying. The, the Bible says later on that she's 12 years old. And it says here, it says, Jesus went with him. And all the people followed, crowding around him. Now, a lot of times people will ask me, how is it that a good God can allow suffering? Like, how is it that a God, because we we believe that God is good, right? We believe that God is great, right? Are you guys awake? Chris is awake. (laughs) We believe that God is great. We believe that God could, if he wanted, he could eliminate all suffering in the world if that was his plan and if that was his will. So why is it, how is it that a good God can allow bad things to happen? How is it that a good God, so Jairus is this man who's faithful, he's obviously a servant to the Lord, and yet his 12-year-old daughter is dying. How is that even possible? So we're gonna talk a little bit today about suffering and the causes for suffering and why God allows it. But if you think back, way back into the beginning, Adam and Eve had a choice and they chose to do things their own way, even though God had said, don't do that. Don't eat the fruit. And they did anyway. And and in that, they demonstrated free will. They demonstrated that human beings have the ability to make choices. Human beings have the, the ability to choose bad or good, right? Right? Okay. And so, I'm not saying that all evil is rooted in in human choice because obviously uh, people wouldn't choose hurricanes or people wouldn't choose cancer or they wouldn't choose things that, that are causes for suffering. They wouldn't choose to have their child die. But when Adam and Eve made that choice, that was when sin entered into the world for the first time. And their purposes for suffering are necessary. Even though we don't want to believe that we need to suffer, we want it, we want things to just go well, don't we? I do. I don't love suffering. But the Bible is really clear that even, even when we suffer, even when we go through hardships and trials, God is still always good. He's always doing something good. And keep that in mind as you go through trials, as you go through hardships. Keep in mind that God wants to do something good in you, even though... Honestly, we oftentimes do not understand suffering. Like Jairus. I'm sure Jairus is like, wow, I've I've tried to honor God in everything I do and now my 12-year-old daughter is dying. Here are some of the purposes for suffering. Number one, there's a purity that comes in us. There's a purification process that takes place within us as God allows us to go through suffering. The second thing is our character is built. You know, I, I often quote, Romans chapter 5, it says, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. There's a character that is developed in us. You know, there's a saying that people say that, um, that hard times reveal character. No, that is not true. Hard times don't reveal character. Hard times develop character. Okay, going through hardships, going through trials develops our character. And, and, and really, we are tested in the middle of suffering, aren't we? We, we either are going to become bitter and we're going to become angry at God or angry at other people or we're going to become a victim. We're going to become battered or we're going to become better. And, and obviously the Lord is inviting us to trust him and to believe him and to believe in his goodness. We either can be victors or victims. We either can have our faith increased or we can walk a life of futility. And the Lord is always, always, always encouraging us to trust him, to believe him, to put our faith in him, to put our hope in him. The third thing that suffering produces is a desperation. There is a desperation in us that can happen no other way except when we have nowhere else to go. You know, after Eric died, my husband, um, there was a desperation in me that I had never experienced before. And I can remember so many times saying, God, where else could I go? You know, I was talking with someone last week and they were just saying, you know, they weren't sure they wanted to continue to serve the Lord. And I said, where else are you going to go? He has the words of eternal life. And so there's a desperation within us that happens through suffering. There's another thing that happens to us. There's a humility that takes place in us, you know. Oftentimes, you see uh, young leaders or, or young pastors or whatever, and there's a certain. I'm not. I'm not trying to say this in an er, in a in a judgmental way, but there's there's a little bit of an arrogance, you know. There's a little bit of a. Um, I don't know. I guess I can't think of another word to describe it, but there's there's a little bit of cockiness, and I always look at them and I think, ah. Oh, What's it gonna take? You know, the servant of the Lord is humble and there's a humility that happens. In 1 Peter 5, it talks about suffering and it says, rather than, than being upset about it, it says, instead, be very glad. How many of you are very glad when you suffer? You're like, yeah, woo, I'm in a trial. <laughs> I, that is not me. I'm not there yet. I'm not that mature. It says, be very glad That is literally what the Bible says. When you go through hardships, when you go through trials, when you go through testing, be very glad. for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. If you ever hear a teaching that says that as a Christian, you should never suffer, it is false doctrine. Because the Lord loves you way too much to let you skate by and never suffer and never get desperate and never be purified and never have your character developed and never attain that level of humility. It says, be very glad these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. And further on in verse 19, it says, so if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. Keep on doing what is right, it says, and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will, what? Never fail you when we go through trials, we have to remember that he will never fail you. He is faithful to the end. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never let you down. It's never like when you go through a hard time, God is kind of like, oops, wow, I, I didn't know that was going to happen. God is in control. God is in charge. And he wants you to develop all of these things. Purity, character, desperation, humility, There's a maturity, number five, there's a maturity that comes through trials, through suffering, and you can can earn it in no other way. And it is a badge, it's a badge of maturity. There was an elderly couple that um, used to always be at our convention, our Foursquare convention, every year when we'd go and Eric and I would always look forward to seeing them because this couple had, I I don't mean to get weird, but it was almost like they glowed. (laughs) They, they had the spirit of the Lord in them. There was a, a peace about them and a joy and just a knowledge of the goodness of the Lord. There was a maturity about them. And I know that it didn't come through just going through life without any trials. They had experienced severe trials. They had been missionaries. They had lost a child on the mission field. I mean, these people had been through so much, but when you'd see them, there was like this, this joy about them, and this depth, this maturity. And finally, the last thing that the Lord wants to increase in us through suffering is our faith. He wants our faith to be tested so that it can be purified. It can be as gold, it says. That when we go through these hardships, we go through the fire. It says, you will not be burned, but you will be purified. You know, just like, I, I don't know if you've heard this, but when they, when they um, heat gold, all of the impurities come to the surface and then they can take the impurities off so that the gold becomes pure, completely pure. And, and the Bible compares our faith to that. So we're gonna talk about, so Jairus, so here's the story of Jairus and this man is suffering deeply. You can imagine how, how anxious he is, how stressed out he is because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. And he's rushing and he's like, I'm sure he was impatient and like, Jesus, please come, please come now. There was a desperation in him and, it's, and he was crying out to God. But as they were going about their way, it says, Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. Okay, so Jesus is on his way to Jairus' home. But then it says here, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Okay, now here, Jairus' daughter is 12. Here, this woman has been suffering for 12 years. I don't know about you, but if if I've been sick in bed for more than two days, I am going stir crazy. (laughs) This woman, imagine this. Imagine, what were you doing 12 years ago? Think about this. 12 years ago, 2007. What were you doing? That's how long this woman had been sick. 12 years she had been bleeding. And, she, and it says she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. So she had tried everything. She had tried going to all these doctors, but it says that instead of them healing her, she had suffered from many doctors. And over the years, she spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. It says, she had gotten worse even though she was desperate. She spent all of her money trying to get healthy. And it says she heard about Jesus. Woo! Heard about Jesus. She had heard that Jesus was a healer. She had heard that he could heal her. He could make her well, it says. So she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. Okay, now think about this. Jairus comes face to face with Jesus and says, Jesus, my daughter's dying, please go to her. This woman, probably because she was considered unclean in that culture because of her bleeding. So she's been bleeding for 12 years. She probably, if she even was married, she probably lost her husband. He probably, men could divorce women for anything back then. He had probably divorced her because he was probably sick of it. Plus, she had squandered all the money. So this woman was probably all alone. And instead of coming face to face with Jesus and saying, Jesus, will you heal me? It says she's kind of snuck up behind him, touched his robe. She's thinking, if I could just get close enough to him, maybe. Maybe there's a chance that he'll heal me. And so it says she touched his robe and immediately... The bleeding stopped. For whatever reason, the bleeding stopped. She knew. She knew it. And it says, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of this terrible condition. All she did was touch his robe. She didn't even say a word to Jesus. She just thought this in her mind. She needed a miracle and she got one right there immediately. Now we throw around the word miracle pretty loosely, don't we? wow, I got a parking spot in the very front. Woo, what a miracle. No, that's a coincidence. (laughs) I mean, that's luck, or I don't believe in luck, but you know what I mean. That is not a miracle. We say it so kind of loosely, like we even say, oh, every baby that's born is a miracle. Well, yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but it's really not a miracle. An actual miracle is is when God steps in, when the supernatural steps in to the natural and changes something. That is what a miracle is. That is actually a true miracle. Uh, uh, like a medical intervention is not necessarily a miracle because those doctors go to school, they study. I mean, we can, you know, of course, declare the greatness of God and thank you, Lord, that these doctors had this cure. But an actual miracle is like, this woman touching a robe and poof, she's healed. Um, in, the, in the book of Mark, there are several miracles that are recorded. These are legit. These are legit miracles. And there's a, a philosopher named David Hume, and he's an empiricist and a naturalist and a skeptic. He was an atheist and he was very anti-Christianity, anti-God. And he, he did this whole argument on why there's no such thing as miracles. And some of the points that he made, I could understand. You know, he talked about um, that the witnesses are unreliable, which we see today, right? We see people that come and say there was a miracle and you're kind of like, mm, I'm not really sure that was a miracle, you know, or they're just wishful thinking. Or, you know, they're all different, different faiths and, and people attribute miracles to all different gods. But the real God, the true and the living God, is still today a God of miracles. He is still today a God who heals. As we reach out and touch his robe, touch his robes of righteousness, touch Jesus, when we get close enough to him, he can heal us of all, everything, of all of the things that terrorize us, the things that, that depress us and devastate us. And he does it in his own way. And he alone is good. He alone is God. In Mark 30, let's go back to the word here. It says in Mark 30, it says, so, so imagine this, the woman comes up, touches his robe, Immediately, somehow she recognizes that she's been healed. And Jesus realized at once that the power had gone out from him. It says, So he turned around to the crowd and he said, Who touched my robe? Okay, now this is a point where I, I think if the word dude was, was in fashion, they would have said that, like, dude, seriously, are you serious? It's like, how many of you were at Draper Days? Did anybody go to Draper Days? There are so many people. And at the end, when everybody's leaving after the fireworks, by the way, thank you to all the people who came out and served. You guys did such a great job. Thank you so much for blessing our city. That was really, that's really the reason we do Draper Days, is so we can be a blessing to the city of Draper. But when you're leaving, when you're leaving after the fireworks, there are, there are these huge, huge crowds of people. And, you know, you're bumping into people, and, you know, it's... I mean, it's just the way things happen in a crowd. And that was kind of what was happening here. There was a huge crowd around Jesus. It was like paparazzi and all the people, and they all wanted in on this. They wanted to see what was going on. And it says, but all at once, he sensed that some power left him. Turns around and says, who touched my robe? And the dis- disciples are like, dude, There are thousands of people surrounding you. It says, they said, look, look at this crowd that's pressing in around you. How can you even ask that? Like, they were like, how could you even ask who touched me? It says, but he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Now think about this. Here, this woman, she knows. She's the one who touched him. And she's like... (gasps) I mean she's trying to be obscure, she's trying to be kind of covert, and all of a sudden Jesus calls her out. It says, "Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done." So now she is probably she is probably so overwhelmed with emotion. First of all because she just got healed after 12 solid years. She just got healed. And now Jesus is calling her out in front of this huge crowd. And I love this part because this is so typical of Jesus. So she's, she's frightened. You know, she's scared to even admit, I, I, I'm the one. I, I was the one who touched you. And Jesus, classic Jesus, turns around. And he says, daughter, daughter. He calls her daughter, which is like the most intimate, tender, gentle, kind, compassionate thing that he could call her. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. And I just, I know that there, there are those of you this morning and... You need to hear him say that. Daughter or son, it's going to be okay. Just believe me. Just believe. I'm in control of your life. I am for you. I am with you. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Isn't that such a beautiful story? of our great and powerful and merciful God. So this is all happening. Now, I want you to keep in mind, this is happening right after Jairus came to him and said, Jesus, please hurry, my daughter's dying. And then Jesus takes this little hiatus here and deals with this woman. And now think about it. This, I'm, this is implied, I'm not saying that Jairus was standing there, but I'm sure he's like, okay, Jesus, that's great and everything, but my 12-year-old daughter is dying. And it says, let's turn uh, to, to verse 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, Now get this. I want you to get the emotion behind this. And they said, they told him, Jairus, it's too late. Your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. Don't even bother coming home. She's dead. Now imagine, Jairus is probably sitting there thinking, if Jesus could have gotten there sooner, I love this. Jesus overheard what they said, and this is what he says to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever gone through grief, the last thing you want to hear when you're grieving is don't be afraid. Or it's all going to work out. Or, you know, after I got married, people would be like, oh, you're... You can still get married. You can still remarry. Well, at the time when you're grieving, you don't want to hear that. Just, this is just a little aside. Just say, I'm so sorry. That's all you need to say if somebody's grieving. But here, Jesus knows what to say. Because Jairus is freaking out, I'm sure. And he's so upset because his 12-year-old daughter died. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Now, Jairus did have faith. Jairus was a man who had faith. It says, then Jesus stopped the crowd. He's like, you know what, y'all? Go away. We're gonna keep going. And so he invites, he invites Peter, James, and John, the three guys closest to him, and the brother of, or uh, James, the brother of, or John, the brother of James. I'm so sorry. It's, but, the, but the crowd, they just were in it for the show. They just wanted to see the show. But Jesus knew that It wouldn't be beneficial for them to come with him. And it says here, it says, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jairus, it says, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. Okay, now keep in mind, I don't know how far this was, how far it was for them to walk there. But back then, funerals were very different than they are right now. You know, I just, uh, my best friend from college was here on Friday and I spent the afternoon talking with him and asking him all these questions. He is actually a mortician. He's a funeral director and his last name is Cease. It's been generations of ceases, the cease funeral home. And um, I just sat and picked his brain about funerals and about our culture and about death. And why is it that, you know, I talked to him about, he's a believer, and I talked to him about this particular passage. And I said, why is it that back then they they would actually hire professional mourners to come in, professional people that they would pay to come in and wail and mourn and grieve? So these people were really just acting. I mean, they were professional actors that were invited to come to the funeral. Imagine that today. You know, you show up as a family and you show up and it's a funeral of your loved one and there's all these strangers that are acting like they're super sad about this. It's just so different. But I asked Kevin, I said, why is it that in our culture, we don't wail? We don't allow people to wail. It's very somber. They've got the organ music playing in the funeral home, and right? It's so different. I think we should let people wail. I mean, I really think that would bring a lot more closure to a lot of people, don't you? But at the funeral, you, just, you see people like trying to wipe away their tears or apologizing for crying. It's like, no, you're sad. When you cry, when you weep, when you mourn, it's because you're sad, because you love that person. It's just so strange that back then, they, they allowed people to grieve, but now it's almost like we try to kind of stop people from grieving. So anyway, so this is going on. So this is a, a chaotic scene. There's people grieving and wailing and mourning. And there's, they're playing these flutes and everything. And it says, Jesus went inside and he asked, why all this commotion and weeping? This child isn't dead. She's only asleep. Think about this. Jairus is hearing Jesus say this go back. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Now, Jesus is saying, she's not dead. She's only asleep. And here it says, and the crowd laughed at him. They laughed at him. But Jesus heals the little girl. Talitha kum, it says, and here's the thing. The crowd was like they were just like the looky-loos. They were just the ones, they were like the people that when there's an accident on I-15, every, they're, they're the ones who slow down because they want to see if they can see something gory, you know, or they want to see something. They want to see a, some sight, which, why do we do that? Right? Why, do we do, why would you want to see something like that? But isn't that our, our natural inclination? And that these people were the same as us, probably. They just wanted to see what is Jesus going to do here? It says, but when Jesus says, she is not dead, she's just sleeping, they laughed at him. And it was probably a lot of these professional mourners. So they went from weeping and wailing to laughing at Jesus. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. These guys were scoffing. They didn't believe that, that Jesus knew what he was talking about. It says, the one who, who um, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, it says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. So these people clearly did not recognize who Jesus was. They did not know who Jesus was. Otherwise, they never would have laughed. They would have never doubted and they would have never mocked because they really were like mocking. It says, but, in verse 40, it says, the crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. He took the girl's father and the mother and the three disciples into the room where the girl was lying and holding her hand again. Just the kindness and the tenderness and the gentleness of Jesus. He's holding this little 12-year-old girl's hand. And he said to her, Talitha kom, which means, little girl, get up. It says, and the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. It says the people were overwhelmed. They were totally amazed. This girl was Dead. But Jesus says she's just asleep. And that's a, a biblical reference to sleep. It says, th- the, the Bible compares death to sleeping. And so, but this was not a, a death that was her soul. Like she wasn't, she wasn't completely like, this is the end. She was sleeping in this kind of the spiritual sense or the physical sense And Jesus is saying, no, this isn't the end of her life. So he holds her hand, talithukum, and he says, little girl, get up. And it says that the crowd was, or or that the parents, Peter, James, and John, the ones who saw this happen, were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Think again about Jairus, his 12-year-old daughter. He's been told she was dead. He brings, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Just have faith. And I just believe that is what the Spirit of the Lord wants to say to some of your situations right now. Whether you've been suffering for 12 years with something, or longer, or whether you have something right now where your circumstances look like it's hopeless. It's, there's no hope here. It's dead. Whether it's a relationship, or whether it's something physical, I just believe Jesus wants to show you his glory and his faithfulness by saying, don't be afraid. Just believe, because he wants you to see his goodness and to know that you can trust him despite your circumstances. I mean, this is a theme throughout the gospels, throughout the book of Mark, is there's a hopeless situation, actually throughout the entire Bible, a hopeless situation, and then Jesus steps in and changes everything. And it says he wants us to be overwhelmed and totally amazed at his goodness, because he never does things the way we think he should, does he? Jesus never does it the way we think he's going to do it. He always comes in through the back door, and you're like, wait, what? You're doing what? That's so classic, God. It says, um, Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give the little girl something to eat, demonstrating, again, she was physically alive. Plus, she'd been sick for a long time, so she probably needed some food. But it's also spir- it's a spiritual symbolism, too. But she was another little daughter, and Jesus stepped in to this hopeless situation. And I just believe today that God wants to demonstrate to you again and remind you he is so great. He hasn't forgotten your situation. No matter how long you have been suffering, he is still gonna step into your situation. I don't know how, and I don't know what he's gonna do to change it, but I do know that he is great. He created the heavens and the earth, and he is going to demonstrate his power. And I just want us, as we go into this song, to just be reminded again of his greatness and his faithfulness and his goodness and his kindness and just surrender. Like we sang, surrender your situation. Surrender whatever it is that, that is causing you to be sick, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, And trust that God wants to step in and demonstrate to you that he is not only able, but he is willing and he is for you. Amen.